0: Alive is you and, me. Says
1: I your... and welcome to the show. That was an interesting bumper. Can I get can we get the welcome to the Bill Newman show, Dan Torres? Or is it we're not going to do that part? Maybe. This is Bill Newman. There we go. W-H-M-P. <laughs> I like that. Thank you so much. <laughs> and we have with us this morning. Welcome to the show, everyone. Senator Joe Comerford. Thank you, Senator being with us. She is with us every month, usually on Mondays, but well, New Year's interfered with our usual schedule, so we really appreciate your coming on today. Uh, Senator Comerford, I'm really interested in something I was reading about that seemed to me like a little nutty, which is that, and you're going to tell me it's not, I hope, but or maybe <laughs> it is, but there's Governor Baker. He's ready to leave the office. He's on the verge of getting out the door, and it seems to me that there are a pile of bills on his desk, and people are saying, sign this, sign this, review this, and it seemed to me to be a kind of an odd way to Run a government, but maybe not. Tell us about what's happening at the end of this, formally and the end of this session. Please.
2: Good morning, Bill, and Happy New Year, and thanks for having me on. So, it's not as nutty as you may think. Um, so, legislatures, as you know, in our Massachusetts legislature, is a two year term, and the two year term ended for us uh, on January 3rd.
1: And oh no, the term was ending on January third. Our telephone call so was ending <laughs> at about nine oh seven. Are you there, Senator? What? Oh, I'm sorry. You were, you, we lost you just for about a few, uh, ten seconds. So please go on. The term you, we got to the part. We heard you say the term ended on January third, and and then you cut out. But oh, please continue. Okay,
2: forgive me. Forgive me. So it's not as nutty as you may think. That The legislature works up until the last moments of every session, and sessions are two years. Uh, so our session ended January 3rd. We were sworn in again for what is the ni- 193rd session yesterday, uh, but we had business up until the end of January 3rd, business that requires the governor's review. You can ask, well, Gijo, uh, wouldn't it have been nice if um, you had gotten some of that business done before the end of January 3rd? And I could say, absolutely, Bill. Um, but we didn't get everything done. And so we came to do as much as we could do, which included a lot of what are called home rule petitions. So bills filed through legislators for communities um, that you know need to work their way through the process. And that was the majority of bills hitting the governor's desk. And these are not complex, often not complex proposals, but they are critical to cities and towns.
1: Right. The Home Rule Amendment is a part of the Constitution. It says, here are the powers and authorities of the local uh, government. And Home Rule petitions uh, come to the legislature from local municipalities saying, here's what we want, we have the authority to do it, but we need you, the legislature, to pass this bill for us, obviously a really important part of our governance. And it's
2: for things like retirement age and land transfers. Uh, And so these are good things, critical things for the legislature to do on behalf of cities and towns. And they were the majority of bills, vast majority of bills hitting the governor's desk some of the other bills that were hitting the governor's desk had long been in the wings. Um, You know, so one of them was a foster care bill of rights bill that I had actually, that was just this morning signed into law. And I had it with representative Tricia Farley Bouvier. And it's part of our work that Rep. Farley Bouvier and I have to help um, course correct, I'll say, or help uh, strengthen the uh, child welfare system in the Commonwealth and, this delineates exact responsibilities of foster parents, and it delineates exact responsibilities of the Department of Children and Families, and it has a provision around prioritizing, as I believe that should be prioritized, kinship care. So it's a a good clarifying bill and set some new things in motion, uh, which I hope will ultimately benefit and strengthen the foster care system in the Commonwealth. And as a foster mom, I was uh,
1: happy to be part of this bill, Senator Comerford. I, I have a number of items on my uh, legal pad to ask you about, but what you just right. what you just said about uh, the crush of business, the end of one session, the beginning of another, makes me really want to get your political perspective on something that has not been on my list this morning, and that is your perspective with regard to the craziness that's going on in the United States House of Representatives. It has been going on for the past few days and is ongoing this morning. I think the House comes back at noon. What's your view of that? Then I promise we'll get back to state
2: issues. (laughs) You know, I'll say, Bill, it was so present yesterday in the State House, uh, you know, both on the podium uh, of people who were introducing, both in terms of the guests who were there. Senator Elizabeth Warren was in the Senate chamber. um, And then certainly in the hall, you know, and on the questions, you know, uh, being asked by reporters who were covering this, my goodness, the stark difference between what's happening in Massachusetts and what's happening in the Capitol. You know, I, I feel like um, what's happening in the Capitol is a powerful um, example of a government that is in uh, a Republican Party that is significantly divided. And with this encroaching hyper-conservativism that is actually bringing the party down. I I hope it calls the Republican Party to really look at this party of Trump element. Um, This is just my personal hope here and see the destructive nature um, that it has brought to Congress and to the party itself. Um, I do think it's a reckoning uh, for Republicans in the nation to look at what, you know, what this kind of Hyper, hyper Trump esque politics has actually caused.
1: Yeah, I'm not so. I'm not so sure. It seems to me that I'm not so sure about one aspect of your comment, Senator. And, and, and it is that uh, uh, I think it may be a time of reckoning with regard to Trump. But it seems to me that Trumpism writ large is actually on the ascendancy. And you look at the governor of Florida and all of the support he is receiving. Um, he's just Trump. Um, without all the baggage. And so I, I'm concerned that the, the dysfunction of the Republican Party uh, doesn't mean a reckoning with regard to Trumpism itself. Could I get a, your thoughts on that for a moment before we return but to I
2: don't know, Bill. I, you know, I'd love to talk about this more. You know, we they predicted this red wave that never came because I do think at their heart the American people understand um understand a kind of politics and policy that prioritizes the true well-being for all people. Um, so I I don't know. I don't know. Of course, DeSantis is, um, you know, himself a very dangerous actor. Um, but there are others out there in the Republican Party who are not. And, you know, we just have to see. We have to see if the party will take hold of this moment and try to course correct. And if Democrats will also hold firm in our belief of what government looks like by the people for the people of the people um, and hold firm in that belief of a future that really is about a, an America where everyone can thrive and not this nasty debasing, um, you know, smoke and mirrors that leaves so many people less well off.
3: And if I may add, uh, Minority Leader McConnell seems like he wants to do, a course, correct yesterday, shaking hands with Joe Biden. About an infrastructure uh, yeah. project that they're doing in Kentucky. So it seems yeah, like he's you know, reading those uh, maps. to. <laughs> we need the course correct.
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, it's hard to love Mitch McConnell. God help him. <laughs> uh, but, but yes, I saw that too, and I thought, you know, is this the man trying to get on the right side of history? Yeah. You know, way too late. Have mercy on him. Um, but yeah, I mean, we'll have to see. We'll have to see. Certainly Kevin McCarthy is paying the price. And again, I'm not a Kevin McCarthy cheerleader here, um, but he's seeing what his party is not able to do. And it's, it's tremendous embarrassment. Um, so we'll see.
1: Uh, Senator Comerford, let's come back to uh, very important, s- historically significant events that are happening at the, ha- s- the State House the swearing in of the new governor and the new lieutenant governor. Give us your perspective on that, if you would, please.
2: Yeah, well, let me say, I you know, I, I, I had the honor of nominating um, Senate President Karen Spilka yesterday for her presidency of the Senate. And in my remarks, I talked about this new day, this new era. And I really believe this bill. I I believe that Governor Healy and Lieutenant Governor Driscoll are going to be tremendous for the Commonwealth. They're a wonderful team. They have broad support. Um, And yesterday, you know, they were in and out of swearing-in ceremonies and the kind of pomp and circumstance that a first day of a legislative session um, brings. And they were buoyant. You could just feel that they were there to do the best work humanly possible with the best intentions, which I think means something here, um, and the best foot forward. And the whole chamber in the Senate was just... You know, jubilant people bang their desks, you know. There was a real enthusiasm for Maura and Kim, and they've earned it. Um, they've earned it. They campaigned well. They're on a great platform. They're putting in really some significantly good people into office. They're hitting the ground with skill and competence. Um, and, you know, I think they're going to have the the support of the legislature. And just let me say, you know, having the first elected, Woman governor and an out lesbian, you know, it means something. Representation matters. I, I do believe that. I'm not a person who runs on my own identity. I don't think Maura did either. Maura didn't say, elect me because I'm a lesbian and I'm a woman. She said, elect me because I'm the best person for this job. Um, but because she is a woman, she will see things differently. And I'm excited for that at the top of the ticket in Massachusetts. And, you know, also in the chamber with Elizabeth Warren, Senator Warren, who I, you know, I have greatest regard for, and also Boston Mayor Michelle Wu. And I just have to say that I was like, okay, women, with, you know, woman Senate president next to them, I thought, let's do this. Let's conquer some of these really intractable um, barriers to some of the the real opportunity, the real care for our people, the real economic growth that we know we can achieve here in Massachusetts. So, uh, you know, I wish the governor, Governor Baker and Lieutenant Governor Polito well. I, you know, I, I do believe they have served, uh, you know, with honor um, and, you know, although I disagree with everything they did, uh, but, uh, you know, I'm ready for Maura and Kim.
1: Let me ask you this. We're going to take a break in a minute, but I'd love your reflection on this. I was struck during the campaign how little was made of gender and of identification. And, I would, and it occurred to me a number of times that this is actually an indication of some kind of societal progress, that it's not the issue that's front and center. Do you think I have that right? Well, I think there
2: are, there are certainly people who run identity campaigns right i'm i'm the right person for this job because i am x i you know i don't begrudge them that i think i'm too much of a workaholic to, <laughs> to think that way right like again i didn't run and say please elect me as your state senator because i'm a queer woman um that's not what i did i said i want to work hard and i'm the right person for, i have the capability and background to be the right person for the job
1: yeah I, and you're a total policy wonk
2: well yes you know I, i've done some work right around budget policies. budgets but anyway, I, I do think that it. I think it's part of what a candidate does and makes choices. And I do think that you're right, Bill, that society is seeing some progress in thought um, regarding, you know, women not having to say, hey, pick me because I'm a woman, because there are so many women who are, uh, you know, who, who are coming to these places, uh, you know, workplaces or, or the political arena. I will say, though – That, you know, being a woman governor is not for the faint of heart. And, you know, I love Maura's courage and her goodwill and her thick hide, uh, because I'm sure what she's facing is still pretty hard, even though she's not saying to people that one of the assets she brings is that she is a woman. Um, So she's not trading on being a woman, even as she faces misogyny and sexism. And I think, you know, I respect her a great deal for that.
1: We're speaking with State Senator Joe Comerford. We're going to squeeze in a quick break, and when we come back, I'm going to ask the senator this question. The date for filing of bills is January 20th. What bills are you proposing? What bills have your name on them, and what are their prospects for passage? We'll be right back.
4: This is Bill Newman, WHMP.
1: When it's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about it.
2: For the first time in the history of the country and of the history of the United States, the Supreme Court has taken away a constitutional right. I would also describe this day as a day when women in the United States and people who can become pregnant have become
4: second-class citizens.
5: 1015, 1400, and 1240. We are the Valley. We are WHMP.
4: You want the very best opportunities for your child. Given the amount of time children spend in school each day, you want your child to be inspired, to be engaged, to love going to school. At Bement, each student experiences this every day. The Bement School in Deerfield is a close-knit community of students from around the valley and across the globe, kindergarten through ninth grade, learning from each other in the classroom, rooting for each other on the athletic field, and celebrating each other on the stage. We are local, we are global, and our differences make us stronger. We interact face-to-face, share meals together every day, and open doors for one another. The true essence of your child's time at Bement is preparing for a life of integrity, of significance, of joy. Financial aid and transportation are available to help make a Bement school education possible. I'm Kim Laughlin, Director of Admission. Please contact me or visit our website. Bement will be the best investment you make in your child's future.
3: 586-1000. Good phone number, right? It's the number Whalen Insurance got when we opened in 1961. It's still our number more than 60 years later. If you need an insurance quote or have a claim, just call 586-1000. We answer the phone, ready to help. That's our pledge to you. Until now. Now when you call, we'll answer. And if it's something clerical or routine, like an address change, we're going to transfer you to the Arbella Insurance Call Center in Quincy. You'll be connected with a real person there, too. You won't be entering your policy number on the dial pad. The Arbella Call Center. I told myself Whalen Insurance would never do this, but insurance agent friends all over New England tell me it actually works really well. So we're going to try it, and if it doesn't work well, I'm sure you'll let us know by calling 586-1000. Wayland Insurance. Local people, local service, local insurance. In partnership with our Bella Insurance.
4: This is Bill Newman, WHMP.
1: We continue our conversation with the state senator for many of our listeners, Joe Comerford. Senator mm-hmm. Comerford, I know that the filing deadline for new bills is January 20th, which will be here in an eye blink. Could you tell us, please, what bills you have at the top of your legislative agenda? And I think a follow up question is why are they on the top of your legislative agenda? and what you think their prospects for passage are. Talk to us.
2: Thanks, Bill. Um, and, I, you know, I'm I'm really so excited about this coming session. It's it's actually, if this is the right word, I, it may be. Um, maybe I need another cup of coffee. But it's, it's quite fun to be going into my third term as state senator for our beautiful region, in part because I've had a moment to really um, find my feet in a way that, that is just deepened my understanding about what, how I can offer um, some policy advancement in the Commonwealth. And I've had some really good luck in my first two terms. So I feel like whatever I put in now is just building on good momentum. Um, So I are, it feels like there's a giant stopwatch in my office in Boston. Um, The team is really been cranking. Really. We've been cranking all the way through the fall since the end of July because you know, putting bills together requires actually literally hundreds of hours of meetings and research and site visits and um, really interrogating the issue. Um, so I, I think we're looking at right now about 66 bills, um, which I feel is a responsible number. Uh, my team may feel it's a little too many, um, but it certainly, um, you know, we're going to go for it. And we have some major bills coming in. Uh, We have a a significant commitment to public higher education, and if you heard Karen Silco last night, the Senate President, or yesterday afternoon, um, she said she wants free community college and money, fair share, amendment money spent for public higher education, and I've been been one of my key issues for four years, and um, you can imagine that I did a happy dance because we have UMass and uh, GCC in our region, HCC, and I believe in public higher education. Uh, So... I'm throwing down there. Um, I have a bill around end-of-life options. It is uh, an advocacy organization called Compassionate Choices. This would offer people at the end of their lives with a terminal diagnosis um, to decide how they die. I believe in this bill very, very much. And um, I think it got pretty far uh, last session, and the momentum is there for this. I also – we got very, very far in a farm bill. Uh, and I think with uh, our fabulous friend Jim McGovern, Congressman McGovern, and the White House Conference on Food and Hunger and Nutrition, um, and also the leadership of the Food System Caucus, uh, which I co-chair, um, we're going to win this time. And, I, you know, I look forward to conversations with you, Bill, um, on this bill um, and to working on behalf of, you know, farmers, farms, um, and farm workers in the region. So. Uh, that's you know those are three proposals. They're very diverse, um, and I really all credit to my team um, and interns and fellows who are laboring on these. Really, even as I talk to you,
1: Senator Comfort, I wanted to ask you because about the bill on end of life choices. It's received a lot of publicity in local media in recent weeks, and of course you are identified as a main proponent and a major mover on this bill. It's been introduced before. It has never succeeded in the Massachusetts legislature. Uh, I think Governor Baker, well, he never indicates, never indicated whether he would or wouldn't sign a bill before it went to his desk, but I don't think he was in favor. Do you think that this bill, in some form, will pass or can pass both the House and the Senate and receive the governor's signature this term?
2: I do. Yeah, I do. I, uh, You know, um, so my first two terms as you know bill i was senate chair of public health and i looked at this bill long and hard for four years and i passed it for the first time out of committee favorably twice um at the end of my first term senator brownsberger who is as you know senate pro tem so he's like the second guy in charge um second person in charge um said to me hey look i'm you know i i I need to get rid of some bills, right? I, that's, that's sort of what people do when they get to leadership. They don't take as many bills because they are basically looking at all bills. And he said, do you want this bill? And I said, yes, I do, because I believe in it. And um, and so Senator Brownsberger is still very, very much an ally here, as is a Senator Sue Moran, who is, um, came in last session and just is fabulous. And she's from the uh, southeast portion she's got some of the cape and then some of southeast mass uh and so i while i'm the lead filer in the senate because that's how we do things we have one name uh you know really this is a trio effort and my colleagues and i are feeling exceedingly heartened uh by this and there's a great rep rep jim o'day in the house um and we've been working with advocates you know these many weeks and months um building you know building the narrative strengthening the bill even further, um, meeting with leadership in both chambers to talk about this bill. Uh, and, you know, uh, as, as as much strength as we can build on a particular issue, I think we've built it for this one. So I, I think it's the right team at the right moment for the right bill. And I'm I'm hoping we prevail.
1: In terms of compassionate choices at end of life, is this a bill that is going to run headlong into religious opposition or those who say, no, you cannot do anything to hasten the end of a life, even if it's your choice and it's up to the individual and there's no coercion and there's medical input and all of that, you're still going to face a lot of opposition to this?
2: Yeah. The, one of the massive uh, lobbies against it is a religious lobby. And not all um, religious leaders are against it. Um, for example, there were many, many rabbis in both hearings that I held, uh, who testified on behalf of constitu- of their own constituents or um, congregants, um, you know their own support for this. You know, I think it's no um, it's no mystery that the Catholic Church is particularly opposed. Um, but I, you know, I I work for constituents. I don't work for the church. Um, and the other thing I'll say is that there have been, and this is, I think materially important there have been many people over these years of the in the disability rights community who have been very concerned about this bill and that it wouldn't push people who are quite ill or needing some significant care into feeling like their only choice was to end their life um and that was a, that's been a profound conversation and so critically important because this bill has changed uh, and grown, I think, with many more safeguards um, in these years that it's been in the my under uh, my committee, uh, because of what we learned from these really uh, courageous, brilliant advocates. Um, so I feel like uh, I feel like that was a, a community that was uh, almost universally opposed, and. Uh, I do see a change in their conversation with us as they saw us, not heard us, right? We acted, we turned out a different bill based on what we heard from them. So I'm, I'm, I'm hoping um, that we can find a path forward. And, you know, I will continue to listen to especially disability rights advocates to make sure that we get this right
1: We've been speaking with State Senator Joe Comerford. Senator, thanks so much for being with us this morning, particularly taking this time. Hope we didn't distract you from your drive into Boston. Uh, We really appreciate your time every month, your representation of us and your leadership. And we'll be speaking with you again soon. Thanks so very much.
2: It was a pleasure to be with you. Thank you so much, um, Bill and Dan. Bye. This is
4: Bill Newman, WHMP.
6: For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. The state's top court heard oral arguments Wednesday in the case against former heads of the Holyoke Soldiers Home. The Commonwealth is appealing the dismissal of an indictment for elder neglect after the dementia housing units were merged at the home during the pandemic. The state is looking into former Superintendent Bennett Walsh and former medical director David Clinton's alleged roles in the deadly COVID-19 outbreak in the Holyoke Soldiers' Home back in 2020 that took the lives of nearly 80 veterans. The justices will take the matter under advisement, meaning it could be months before they make a ruling on the appeal. An explosive device has been found in a basement in Wilbraham. A resident called police after cleaning out their basement and finding the device. The Massachusetts State Police bomb squad removed the device and took it to the wastewater facility near the Chicopee River. The device was then detonated around 6.15 p.m. Senator Joe Cummerford was sworn in for a third term Wednesday. Cummerford represents the Hampshire, Franklin, Worcester districts in the state Senate. After the swearing-in, Cumberford nominated Senator Karen Spilka for president of the Senate in the first vote taken by senators in the 193rd session of the Massachusetts General Court. After a motion made by opposing candidate Senator Bruce Tarr, it was declared that the vote was unanimous in favor of Senator Spilka.
1: Mostly cloudy today. A little bit of icing is possible, especially in Franklin County through the first half of the day. Otherwise, it's scattered light showers of rain, a high of 40 to 44. A few flurries and scattered snow showers overnight tonight, a low of 28 to 34, mostly cloudy tomorrow. Rain and snow showers are high in the low 40s. The weekend looks dry. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP.
6: This News Minute is brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media.
5: Yo soy Johan Vega con la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media. Los republicanos de la Cámara atravesaron un largo segundo día de votaciones infructuosas el miércoles, incapaces de elegir a su líder Kevin McCarthy como presidente de la Cámara o idear una nueva estrategia para poner fin al caos político que ha empañado el comienzo de su nueva mayoría. Sin embargo, McCarthy no se dio por vencido, incluso después de que la cuarta, quinta y hasta una sexta ronda de votaciones no arrojaron mejores resultados y se quedó tratando de cancelar una sesión nocturna. Incluso eso fue controvertido, ya que la Cámara votó 216 contra 214 en medio de gritos y multitudes para levantar la sesión por la noche. No se evidenció ningún progreso en absoluto durante el día de votación tras votación, cuando los republicanos intentaron elevar a McCarthy al puesto más alto. Las votaciones estaban produciendo casi el mismo resultado. 20 opositores conservadores aún se negaban a apoyarlo y lo dejaban muy por debajo de los 218 que normalmente se necesitan para ganar el mazo. De hecho, McCarthy vio caer su apoyo a 201 cuando un compañero republicano pasó a votar simplemente presente. La Cámara no pudo hacer ningún otro trabajo como jurar nuevos miembros, formar comités, atender la legislación o investigar la administración de Biden hasta que se elija al nuevo presidente. Al no ver una salida rápida al estancamiento político, los republicanos votaron abruptamente al final del día para aplazar la sesión durante unas horas mientras buscaban desesperadamente un final para el caos que ellos mismos crearon. El comienzo desorganizado del nuevo Congreso señaló las dificultades que se avecinan con los republicanos que ahora controlan la Cámara. Por su parte, el presidente Joe Biden dijo que el resto del mundo está mirando la escena en el piso de la Cámara. Creo que es realmente vergonzoso que esté tomando tanto tiempo, dijo Biden. No tengo idea de quién prevalecerá. Yo soy Johan Vega y esta fue la síntesis informativa de Hollywood Media a través de WHMP.
6: This News Minute has been brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media.
4: This is Bill Newman, WHMP.
1: We are so pleased to have with us in the studio, Alan Rubin, Attorney Alan Rubin, who retired on Friday, last Friday, after some 50 years as a public defender in Hampshire and Franklin counties who was an attorney with the Committee for Public Counsel Services before that, I think known as the Massachusetts Defenders Committee. And what a career. I have to ask you this, Alan, because I think our listeners want to know this. You went to Harvard. You're a really smart guy. You're a terrific lawyer. You could have practiced any kind of law you wanted and been really successful at it. Why criminal defense for poor people? Tell us about that.
0: It just seemed like the right match. I wasn't exactly sure what I wanted to do other than, you know, I went to college in high school and college in the 60s, uh, grad, uh, you know, in law school as well, graduated in 70. So, uh, you know, that ethos of, you know, trying to fix the world was, was very much in my being. And I, I think my family, uh, you know, was always uh, very liberal. Um, so I think that was, uh very part of part of how I grew up, uh, that I wanted to do something um, involving uh, social activism of some sort, and ended up working uh, for Mass Defenders and just feeling uh, that uh, this is uh, what I like to do. Maybe it's just because I'm stubborn, I don't know, but uh, I, w- I was enjoying it. I eventually found, I can't say I was an instant star, that I had some abilities in it, and uh, and I've just found it uh, obviously demanding, but rewarding as well.
1: I, I agree with that characterization or that adjective, uh, stubborn. I think tenacious also is part of that that uh, picture. I would ask you to take a slightly deeper dive into what defense lawyers do and why they do it. Because a half century of this job, I think, speaks to an extraordinary dedication both to principal and to your clients, to making the system accountable, to trying to keep innocent people out of jail and those who have committed a crime to at least be treated by the system with some compassion and decency and understanding, um, all of which seems to me often to be in short supply. How do you bring those values or how did you, for 50 years, bring those values that you just articulated for us to your job, to your representation, to your interactions with your clients, as well as with the system?
0: Well, I, I don't think you can generalize. I mean, I think it, it it's interesting. Um, as I said, i you know I'm sort of a child of the 60s, if you want to put it that way. Um, and um,
1: I would consider you one of the grown-ups from the 60s. <laughs> that's just my view.
0: And, and also, you know, from a honestly a liberal Jewish background um so there was always a, this feeling for me but i could say when i started uh, in the mass defenders uh in 1972 there had just been a very big shake-up it was still in process the the organization was more the traditional public defenders organization and and it's fair to say and i started in the boston area i was there for about 18 years before i came out out here um that there are a lot of people who were not necess- doing this job, were not necessarily uh, sympathetic to our clients in, in many ways, yet they had, for them, they like to fight. They, liked to f- they just sort of saw themselves fighting for underdogs, even though they didn't necessarily, some of them honestly were overtly racist or sexist, but they uh, still were fighters, and that characterized them. Um, so they came from a very different place and many of them had had long careers as defense lawyers, either with mass defenders or, or, um, in private counsel. Um, so I, I don't think, uh, you could generalize, uh, from one person's experience. For me, it, it, as I said before, it was something I started doing. Um, I found it rewarding. You know, can't say I got along with every one of my clients, but, but most of them I liked and, and tried to understand what put them in their situations, uh, those who were, were not guilty of the, and those who were. Uh, but everybody's a human being here, and everybody involved anywhere in the system is a human being, and, and they have their own issues. Um, and and I, I tried to do my best to understand people's issues, to to try to explain reality to people sometimes, but try to work within the system, uh, work within the system to uh, try to get the best results for each individual. Uh, I believe that's important. And at the same time, to the extent we could, doing what we can to to change the system to make it more diverse, more equitable, uh,
1: more just. I'd like to ask you a question that I personally hate being asked, um, and therefore I'm reluctant to in some ways pose it to you, but I think it's a question that defense lawyers get a lot from lay people, which is <clears throat> how do you defend someone if they are accused and or you know they did something terrible and or they simply they committed the crime? How, how do you respond to that question?
0: Well, the very simple answer is, is it's not my job... Uh, to be a judge or a jury. Uh, my job is, is, is to defend an individual um, and, and do what I can for them. So um, that's my job. I think our, our legal system, our, our whole society, really depends on people being able to take the side of someone who's accused by the government, which is uh, pretty awesome, powers and, and and to try to hear their side of the story um, and do what you can uh, to assist them and provide them guidance. Uh, you know, it's honest. And, you know, Bill, I know you're a lawyer as well. Uh, you, 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 you know, often don't have people saying, you know, or very rarely, almost never have somebody saying, I'm guilty, but get me off. Uh, you know, um, and often when you are in a situation like that where, you know, it, it's a situation where... You know, people are, are caught with drugs very often, and, you know, the police didn't follow the rules and made an illegal search or seizure. Uh, well, I think society benefits more by keeping the police in line, not giving them, uh, letting them get away with doing illegal searches and seizures, for instance. I think overall society benefits by keeping uh, that type of activity in line and knowing there's a check on it uh, than even if some People who commit those crimes may get off. It doesn't happen all that often, but but I think it's very important uh, that we do have the, those checks and, and the ability to to make sure that, that, that the government, the state, uh, the police can't do whatever they want. Look at those countries where they can. And, and this is, you know, I consider ourselves
1: to be part of the, that first line of defense there. We're speaking with Alan Rubin, excuse me, who was an attorney with Mass Defenders and the Mass Defenders Committee and then the Committee for Public Counsel Services for 50 years, retired on Friday. I'd like to ask you about honing your skills because I tell the story about you, uh, and I have told it to a number of people, which is some years ago I had a client, um, and I couldn't represent him for a number of reasons, um, and they said, well, I could have the public defender or I could go and somehow scrounge up money for a private attorney. But the young person who was involved didn't have any money, and the family really could have had to scrounge for money. I said, you're going to have Alan Rubin as your attorney. He is one of the best trial lawyers I know. Trust in Alan. And I thank you. It worked out. You won the trial. I'd like to know, how did you become such a good trial attorney? Because this is not a skill taught in law school, especially in the time when we were there? Uh, I think
0: a lot of it is probably good Good mentors. You know, as I said, in, in the old mass defenders, maybe I didn't politically agree with a lot of the other attorneys, but they were a lot of amazingly good attorneys. Um, and we had the ability, you know, one of the good things about being a public defender, you're... Uh, and especially those days in Boston, which were pretty wild days, you were just in in court all the time. And when you were, you know, not right in front of a judge or something, you'd go and watch trials, and you'd see people do good things and see people uh, be very good, and you'll see people uh, doing really poor jobs, and you'd absorb things. Uh, Again, when I started... um, Our training was very rudimentary, unlike now, where it's excellent. Uh, We had relatively little supervision. The person who was in charge of my first court, Dorchester, which is a wild court in those days, uh, the supervisor didn't appear once in court. And the people who were effectively supervising me were there um, about six months before I was. Um, So we were all learning together. But, you know, you learn, I would say, almost by osmosis after a few months. It's, Gee, I don't know anybody teaching me this. There's more procedural stuff. But but uh, you, you pick things up. Um, I don't know if I don't consider myself to have any particular talent or anything. I, uh, I tend to look at things as logically as I can. I think it's it's very important, as I said earlier, and firm belief that everybody here. Is, is a human being, uh, everybody in the courtroom. Um, so I think it's very important when you're looking at a case and hearing what, you know, the other side's saying, what your client's saying, you know, what what are the average human beings? A jury's going to be a collection of average human beings. It's the genius of our jury system. You don't know who the individuals are, but hopefully if the system works well, and most of the time it does, um, you're going to get, you know, a, a consensus of what average people think of something. So somebody, you hear, read something in a police report or hear your client or somebody else say something and it just is, wow, people aren't going to like that. The average person uh, is going to not like that. If it's something against your client, wow, you try to exploit that. If it's something your client or somebody on your side says, well, you got to try to figure out a way to to address that. So that's how I sort of look at cases and and, and try to ask questions uh, that, that follow that 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 strategy.
1: You would get on your feet. You'd, there'd be a jury in the box, a judge uh, up up presiding over in, in an uh, in the bench above everyone else in the courtroom, and the uh, court reporters, and the audience, and the prosecutors, and the court officers, and all eyes are on you, and your client is facing. Twenty years or a life sentence, the responsibility is enormous. I'd like to know how you personally dealt with those feelings of responsibility and whether at any time in all of this, you just got plain nervous. Oh, you nervous all the time.
0: <laughs> 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 you know that you know that that that's a given, you know, obviously, you know there's a the immense amount of stake and even, you know, lesser cases, you know, uh, even a conviction probation is, is a pretty Im- Im- important impact on, on somebody's life. So, so, uh, it's not always the, the huge sentences that, that are worrying there. You know, any client is facing, you know, motor vehicle license consequences. There, there, are there are a lot of consequences uh, at all levels, uh, here. So, um, to be honest, I don't know. Uh, I, I think it, it's mostly, uh, you know, internal. I, I get nervous, actually, lots of n- nights I toss and turn, thinking about, you know, what questions I'm going to ask, how I'm going to deal with this. Um, Would you wake up in the middle of the night sometimes? Yeah, absolutely. Thinking
1: about the cases, thinking about what your cross is going to be?
0: Uh, and, and all the time. <laughs> uh, you know, it's something that, with me at least, it's at one level uh, with me 24-7, uh but then I can compartmentalize and do other things, but something's maybe in the background. You know, uh, uh, for me, I'm, I'm a very active rock climber. Uh, I think that eases some of the stress. It's a different type of stress, so maybe they counterbalance each other. Uh, but even then, sometimes during breaks, I'll find myself all of a sudden thinking about, what am I going to ask about that? So so it's always uh, been in the background. It'll be interesting to see uh, <laughs> without having that there in the background Uh how that sort of works. Uh, I want something to keep my brain active. Um, but, um, yeah. Uh, but honestly, I, I don't know. I, I can't sit and break it down. I just do what I do. It may be my, something in my personality that lets me do that, but I, but I sure as heck do get nervous and and worry very much.
1: I'm actually surprised at that answer. I've never seen you in court look remotely nervous. So whatever you did to cover that that was one amazing act, really.
0: Yeah, well, uh, you know, you, you, do what you, well, you do what you can. Uh, when you're in there, when you're in the moment, uh, probably like professional athletes or anything else, you know, you're in the moment, uh, you get in the flow, and, and you just get focused. I think preparation's important, very important, knowing what, what your case is, but also having the flexibility to respond because there's always things you don't expect, always. Um, and some people get kind of rigidly locked into this is what the questions I'm going to ask and how I'm going to approach things without being aware that things have drastically changed. So you have to keep that ability uh, there as well.
1: We're going to take a quick break. We come back, we'll continue our conversation with attorney Alan Rubin, 50 years as a public defender. We'll be right back.
4: This is Bill Newman, WHMP.
3: good phone number, right? It's the number Whalen Insurance got when we opened in 1961. It's still our number more than 60 years later. If you need an insurance quote or have a claim, just call 586-1000. We answer the phone, ready to help. That's our pledge to you, until now. Now when you call, we'll answer. And if it's something clerical or routine, like an address change, we're going to transfer you to the Arbella Insurance Call Center in Quincy. You'll be connected with a real person there, too. You won't be entering your policy number on the dial pad. The Arbella Call Center. I told myself Whalen Insurance would never do this, but insurance agent friends all over New England tell me it actually works really well. So we're gonna try it, and if it doesn't work well, I'm sure you'll let us know by calling 586-1000. Whalen Insurance. Local people, local service, local insurance. In partnership with Arbella Insurance. If I remember correctly, there's something like 30 different grapes in this wine. That's they, the awesome thing about Portuguese. There's like two grapes people have ever heard of, and the rest of it is just catch as catch can and it's usually pretty good and very cheap.
4: Every Friday morning, Monty visits the wine snobs to talk about wine at State Street. These
1: are Portuguese field blends from Casa Freitas. It is the Sand Creek red blend. I love this wine. It's 9 dollars Dark. It's rich.
3: It's red. Uh,
4: given the fact that there are thirty grapes playing against each other in here, there's a lot
3: going on yeah. for 9.90. My kids, every time I make them smell wine, say it smells like wine. All wine smells the oh, same, yeah, my and daughter, I'm like, you're yeah. wrong. But when I smelled this, the first thing I thought of was it smells like wine. <laughs> but then very quickly moved on to chocolate and blueberry and yeah. As soon as I swirled the glass, boom, yeah, like chocolate cake,
6: blueberry and chocolate cake. That's what. Those like are the that. two
3: things I'm getting: blueberry and chocolate, iron and blood. Yes. Yeah. Vampire wine.
6: Find your favorite wine
4: and your next favorite wine at state street fruit store deli wines and spirits did you know that you can prevent domestic and sexual violence you can say something we all can say something together we can do so much say something is the domestic and sexual violence prevention program at safe passage join a prevention lab to build your skills and find opportunities to say something to prevent violence Join us and help make your community safe and healthy for everyone. Get more information or sign up for a prevention lab at saysomethingnow.org.
3: The Western Mass Business Show with local dynamo, Tara Brewster, Saturdays at 11 and Sundays at two, only on WHMP. Brought to you by Greenfield Savings Bank with offices all throughout Hampshire and Franklin counties, greenfieldsavings.com. The Western Mass Business Show with Tara Booster, WHMP.
4: This is Bill Newman, WHMP.
1: We continue our conversation with Alan Rubin, who has just completed his last day as a public defender. As a staff attorney with the Committee for Public Counsel Services here in Northampton, fifty years as a public defender, I'd like to ask Alan: What are the biggest changes you've seen in the law and the courts in the fifty years that you practiced as a public defender?
0: Oh boy, there've been there've been a lot. Uh, back in the in the in the seventies when I started, again I started in the Boston area. It was a very wild, uh, especially at the district court level. The, uh, very little supervision. The, the first court I started in Dorchester, all three judges were the subject of disciplinary pr- procedures. Um, so the, the court system over time has become much more professionalized. Uh, the, um, though it's still got a ways to go, I think, especially the last few years, there's been become a much more diverse place um, in the courthouses. Again, it's got a long way to go. Uh, but I, there is a real knowledge both within our agency and within the whole court system and hopefully the whole uh, criminal justice system of the need um, to have everybody represented and, and steps are being made. Uh, I know just recently, last few trials I had, there's a new instruction the judges have to give jurors, even <laughs> when we're paneling jurors on unconscious bias, uh, which is an excellent instruction, just calling, whether it works or not, at least it's calling people's attention to the impact that has uh, in their decision-making. So the, the mere fact that there is an instruction in the court system thinks that's something worthwhile uh, is a major and very important change.
1: One change that has happened is that lawyers now are asked, allowed to ask prospective jurors questions to determine whether they can be fair and impartial in the case. Correct. Has that, has that made a difference?
0: Uh, it's still very new. It, it's, uh, in Massachusetts, it's been common in a lot of other states for many years. Uh, it's still pretty limited in Massachusetts. Uh, but I think, and I only had a few trials because of COVID, um, that, um, you know, where, where it was in place. I think it's a, it's a good s- step in the right direction. I'd like to see more, uh, it was called attorney conducted voir dire, Uh, but I think it's a good step. Yes. Anything to get a, more fair representative jury uh, is is excellent. I think that's an important step in that regard.
1: And, well, I'm afraid to ask one more question because we are going to run out of time. I hope you'll come back. I really want to ask you about racism in the system and sexism in the system. I want to ask you to explain to us the difference between bar advocates and staff attorneys for the Committee for Public Counsel Services. I hope you'll come back soon, Alan. We have a lot more to talk about. Be happy to and I appreciate your time today and congratulations 50 years really well spent congratulations. Thank you very much.
0: I can hear the soft breathing. This
4: of the is Bill Newman, WHMP as she lies here
5: beside me
3: Grow Food Northampton helps you make the local food system better. This is Michael Skillcorn, Director of Programs. You can join us by shopping at Northampton Tuesday Market, getting a plot at our community garden in Florence, buying a farm share at Crimson and Clover or Sawmill Herb Farm. You can volunteer with us in our giving garden or participate in our neighborhood markets that bring the local food movement to underserved communities in Northampton. Get involved and support our work at growfoodnorthampton.com E hablamos español. Pregunte por Michael. Here's a slice of advice about pizza boxes. It's okay to recycle the entire pizza box as long as it's empty. For a long time, creasy boxes were assumed to cause recycling problems, but a new study proved they don't. It's time to capture the 3 billion pizza boxes used annually in the US. Visit recyclesmartma.org to learn more about what can and Live can't and get recycled after you've enjoyed tonight's pizza in the after the since
1: 1950, WHMP Northampton, WHMQ Greenfield, on Northampton Radio Group patient.